thank you, Greg, and those that uh, serve with you in leading us in worship. And thank you, um, young men, for taking up the offering. I hope that you have a Bible with you this morning. And I want to invite for you to join me in Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, we are going to pick up, pick up where we left off last week as we are studying through the book of Jonah together on a Sunday morning. And so hopefully when you came in, you got a copy of the, the bulletin on the back of that. There's some notes if you want to reference those or if you want to use those as we study through God's word this morning. But we are going to, in a few moments, um, pick up in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 5 as we have just been walking verse by verse through this book of the Bible. Every single morning I get an email and it's from a company that kind of collects a lot of the political stories, economic stories, current events, things of interest. And they put it all in together in one email. And I get this email. It takes about five or ten minutes to read. But some of you sit down and you read the newspaper. Some of you sit down and you watch the news. Um, this email just comes in my inbox. And I read it and it just kind of gives me snapshots of what is going on both in the United States, but also outside of the United States. And one of the features they put in this email, probably two or three times a week, is they put what they call three headlines and a lie. So what they do in this little feature piece is they put three headlines and a lie. But the way they present it is, is they go through all the headlines that have been published in news outlets, magazines, newspapers, TV shows, whatever the case may be, across, across the, the wide variety and says, we're going to pick out three of maybe the most outlandish news articles you can imagine and then insert a fictitious or a fake one and see if you can spot the phony. Let me show you what I'm talking about. So here, just this last week, here were the four articles that were presented, and it is your job as the listener, my job as the reader, to try to figure out which one is the fake. Number one, the title was, The New York City Mayor Defends the Nuclear Attack Public Service Announcement by Saying, Better Safe Than Sorry. That was headline number one. Headline number two, an Arizona business owner was arrested for breaking the air conditioning units of the employees in a back-to-office scheme. Headline number three. A distillery is fighting a case of invasive crabs by turning them into whiskey. Number four. Three men were charged in a plot to sell the stolen lyrics of the Eagles song, Hotel California. So you got these four headlines. Three of them are true that were taken just recently from news outlets. And so there's three headlines, one lie. The first one, New York City Mayor um, tries to defend why they put out a nuclear attack PSA. The second one is the Arizona business owner that gets arrested for breaking the AC units of his employees trying to get them back to work. The third one is the distillery that is now making whiskey out of invasive crabs. And the fourth one is men being charged in a plot to sell the stolen lyrics from the movie, or sorry, no, not from the movie, who some of y'all are getting upset, from the song, from the Eagles. Hotel California. So the question is, is which one is the phony? Well, you may say, well, I don't really care. Some of you may care. And the, the answer is, it's the story out of Arizona. 
The other three stories are true, and the other three headlines were something that was, very, that was really published in the headlines of having credibility and being something that you and I should know about. You may say, well, Spence, why in the world do you bring this up? Well, you and I are inundated with so much information and so many headlines today, we have a hard time understanding what we should believe and what we should not believe. You have what they call fake news. You have the disinformation board. You have all of these things out there. We have so many voices, so many names, so many faces, so many, uh, so much information. We are struggling to try to say, well, I believe in this and I don't believe in that. And the question is, is how do we determine, how do we know what we are going to believe in and what we're not going to believe in? Or maybe let me take it another step. We have a crisis in the church today. We have a crisis in the church today where we have individuals as well as churches that say, we believe Bible says this, and then 10 years later, we change and we say, no, we don't believe that anymore. We now believe the Bible says that. Or we have individuals in the church today, churches by and large, that say, you know what, we believe that the Bible is God's word and we believe that we should follow God's word. We're just not going to follow it personally. Or we have a crisis where we have people that say, you know what, I believe that it's God's word, I just don't have to follow it Monday through Saturday. We have a problem in the world today, and we have a problem, especially in the church, that we say one thing in here on a Sunday morning, and we live something differently Monday through Saturday, and there's a world outside, there's children in the home, there are family, and there are co-workers wondering, do you believe it or do you not believe it? So imagine you and I are sitting here today and we have to prove that we believe what we say we believe. How would we prove it? Well, here in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah has come into the city of Nineveh. And as he comes into the city of Nineveh, God had told him to go and to tell them about God and to tell them about the wrath of God and to go and warn them of the judgment of God. And so it tells you there in chapter three and verse four that Jonah goes into the city and he says eight words. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He goes into the city. He gives them this message. And at the first part of verse five, it says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. And my question for you and I this morning, and my desire is, as we get into this text together, is to ask the question, how do we know they believed? And more importantly, how can we show the world around us today that we believe? Because it's one thing for you and I to come in and to say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Oh yeah, I believe in God's word. Oh yeah, I believe I'm a Christian. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But how do we show to the people around us that we believe what we say we believe? So here in this text before us, it says the city of Nineveh, the people that Jonah preached to, they believed God. And then what, or what follows then in verse 5 all the way down to the rest of the chapter in chapter 3 is them showing us and pointing us to, I put there in your notes, giving us an example of what that belief looks like. My hope this morning as we come to a conclusion here later on as we get through this passage that we will go out of these doors and we will ask ourselves the question, do people see belief in my life? So we're going to start there in verse 5 of what he told you. 
that we see this city of Nineveh. Jonah has gone to them. He, uh, when we left off, he had just gotten vomited out of the belly of the great fish. He is there along the Mediterranean Sea. He still has to walk on foot. I don't know how you would walk otherwise than on foot, but he has to walk then five over 500 miles to the city of Nineveh. For most people, that would take them about 30 days. So he has spent 30 days, day after day, walking all day long, thinking about, I am going to do what God told me to do. He gets into the city of Nineveh. He had gone, it says the, the city was about three days in breadth as far as it would take three days to traverse the entire city. It says that he went a full day journey and then at the end of the first day he said those eight words he may have said more he may have said less the Bible tells us he said eight words and when he told them yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown the people it says there in verse 5 the people believed in God but they did more than just believe they gave us examples of what it looks like to believe so the first example I want you to see there with me in your copy of God's Word is that they responded you see there in your notes, and I put this behind me on the screen, they responded. So if you go back up there to chapter 3 and verse 5, it says the people of Nineveh believed God. And it doesn't just stop there and say they believed God and everybody had a prayer service, took up an offering, and they went home. No, they believed God, and then what did they do? They believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So the people that heard Jonah speak, the people that heard Jonah preach, what did they do? They responded. They heard what God said. They said, you know what? We need to do something about this. So they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth. When they're talking about putting on sackcloth, it's their sign of mourning. It's their sign of saying that something is wrong. It's the outward appearance. A lot of times you will go to, to funerals. And kind of the expected traditional color of the funeral was black. Everybody was expected that you were to wear black. It was a sign of mourning. Well, sackcloth was a sign that we have contrition in our hearts. It was a sign that we are being remorseful before God. It's a sign that there is something wrong in our lives that we're lamenting about. So they fasted, which means they don't eat, they don't drink, they don't intake anything because they want to focus on God and they put on sackcloth. But it wasn't just the people that heard Noah's, or not Noah, I'm going to say Noah a lot, so you just translate Jonah. So it's not just the people that heard Jonah speak. Notice it goes on there in verse 6. It says, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So now you have the people that heard Jonah preach. Now you have the king that heard from the people that heard Jonah preach. And then he goes on in verse 7, and it says, he issued a proclamation and published, and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. You may say, what did the donkeys do? What did, the, what, did, what, what, did the, what did the dogs do? What did the swine do? What did the sheep do that they had to do this? But all this was done as a sign of their response to what? To the response to God's word. I want you to understand with me, brothers and sisters, friends, this morning, that God's word requires a response. It requires a response. Let me give you a quick example. You go to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3. In Exodus 20 verse 3, the Bible says, You shall have no other gods before 
me. You may say, well, that's a pretty simple verse. No, that is a very provocative verse, very provoking verse, because the question comes down to how will you respond? Will you respond by saying God is the only God? God is the only priority. God is first and foremost in my life. Or you and I look at that verse and say, you know what? My response to that is, well, no, Spence, nobody's going to do that. We do it all the time. We do it all the time by our behavior. We do it all the time by our actions. We do it all the time when the Holy Spirit prompts us and when the Holy Spirit puts something in our minds, in our lives, and we say, you know what? I am not going to do that. All the time we are asking the question, how am I going to respond to the word of God? When these people heard Jonah preach the word of God, when they heard Jonah say the message that God had given them, they responded because hearing God's word requires a response. So not only the people that heard Jonah preach, they repented. They, they responded to Jonah's word and God's word. Not just the king, he responded. Then you had the people that were in the city that hadn't heard Jonah, but had heard the king. The king heard the people, and the people heard Jonah, and everybody is responding. And not just that they said, oh, that's a good word. Oh, that's a strong word. Oh, that's a powerful word. Oh, that's an inspired word. No, it tells us there in the text that their response was evident. You could tell that they were responding to what Jonah had said. You know, there's a lot of things in life that we respond to. And sometimes we label it as emotion. Sometimes we label it as excitement. Sometimes we label it as some type of an environment or a feeling. And sometimes it can be easy for you and I to come in and say, you know what, we just, there's no, there's no animation in our lives. I'm, I'm sure I was like that when I was, my children's age. But Jalen and I've got these teenage boys now, and they show very little excitement. Everything's just like, huh, huh, huh. And you look at them and say, Don't you get excited about this? Huh? Don't you like that? Huh? 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 And even sometimes, even sometimes, <coughs> And pull your toes in here. Sometimes, sometimes us adults, we come into this place and we start off with a song like Greg started us off with. And instead of you getting a smile on your face and you're excited because you know what? There's some life going on. Some of, sometimes we just kind of come in and like, mm-hmm. We don't get excited. Now, I know what I know what some of you all are thinking. Some of you all are thinking, well, I just don't get excited, Spence. I just don't get excited, Spence. And I'm going to tell you, it's all a matter of what you're choosing to get excited about. You see, I could take you. I could take you a few miles south down to the... Calm down, Charles. Down to the Memorial Gaylord, Gaylord Memorial Family Stadium. Down there where they fit in 86,000 plus football fans that come into the stadium. You have people that will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars for merchandise and gear and tickets. They will spend hours and hours of their time before the game. They will spend hours and hours of their time in the game, packed into a stadium. They will spend all of this time and then you will have 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 year old men and women in the stadium cheering their head off, so excited because they know that they need all the help they can get and they're all in there and they're all in there pumped up on a Saturday and then they come into God's house on a Sunday and they got nothing. 
And if we're excited about our Savior, and if we're excited about us being saved, and we're excited about the things of God, maybe it would behoove us to let the, per- the people around us see it in our response. Maybe, maybe it would be in order for if we are excited about heaven and we're excited about being saved and we're excited about knowing that this is not all there is and we are excited about the fact that I am forgiven by a holy God and I am excited about the fact that I have a purpose for living, maybe, just maybe, somebody should see the excitement on my face and in my life. And then around me, maybe it should be evident of my response to God's word when people look at my life. And so here in this text, they give an example. They say there in verse five, it says they believed. (laughs) They did not just believe. They believed and they responded. But then not just so they responded. There's another example that he gives us. And the example they give us secondly is that they repented. They repented. If you go there at the second part of verse eight, The king makes the decree and he says everybody in the town, not just the people that heard Jonah preach, not just the king that heard the people that heard Jonah preach, but then all the people, he said everybody, all the livestock, everybody, they're going to respond to this word of God. And then he says in the second part of verse eight, he says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. He says, not just are we going to respond to the word of God, but we're going to repent of what the word of God calls us to repent from. And you notice here in the text, he told them what to do. He said, let every man turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. He wanted to make sure that they understood that they were to not just respond, but the proper response is repentance. But then notice it wasn't just a matter of you need to think this in your mind. It was something they were going to do with their hands. It was something they were going to do with the external parts of their lives. I put there in your text, or in your notes there, I'm sorry, that the internal changed the external. When God got a hold of their heart and God got a hold of their lives and they got their minds right with the one and true living God, it changed what they did on the outside. You will hear people today and they will say, well, I know I'm right with Jesus in my heart. (laughs) Well, you might be right with Jesus in your heart, but you're not right with Jesus with your hands. You might be right with Jesus in your heart, but you're not right with Jesus with your eyes. You might be right with Jesus with your heart, but you're not right with Jesus with your time. You might be right with Jesus, but you're not right with Jesus with your witness or your walk. The king says your repentance, your response is not just going to be what goes on inside your heart. It's going to be what happens outside that people see as well. Jesus talks about this there in Matthew chapter 23. You might just write it down in your margin to go back and look at it. He talks about in chapter 3 and verse 25, and he's writing to the religious leaders, and he tells them, he tells them, woe to you, scribes. Woe to you all. He says there, the hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. He's telling them the danger is, is not making sure that you look right when you're walking out of your house. But the question is, is what is the condition of your heart? What is the attitude of your heart? The king understands that it's not just a matter of them saying, oh, we believe God's word. They have to change the way they're living. 
So he says there in verse 8, he says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. He wants them to know that this picture of repentance is not just saying it with your mouth. The picture of repentance is that you turning from your formal self, turning from your former self and turning to God. Sometimes I will meet Aaron Ole driving down the road. And when I come and see her driving down the road, I always tease with her because I will swerve to the ditch. I don't swerve at her. I always swerve towards the ditch. And so, but it always startles her. I think it startles her. Maybe not. Maybe she's just as annoyed. But it's one of those things when I see her coming, I always veer. I never veer towards her. I always veer away from her off into the ditch and kind of make her wonder what in the world is this crazy guy doing? But I swerve. Every time I see her, if I recognize it's her, I'm going to swerve. Friday. I was headed into Chandler. And I'm making my way into Chandler. I'm just past the Route 66 storage area. And there's a member of this church that was coming towards me. And this particular member of the church swore, swerved towards me. Not swerved away from me, but swerved towards me. I had to drive halfway off in the ditch just to keep from being in a vehicular incident. I mean, it's amazing that I'm even alive today to tell about it. And I think before we're done, Evan Green should apologize to you and apologize to me for being putting me in that kind of peril. But it was one of those things that, that he swerved towards me, right? And when he swerves towards you, you're thinking, well, I got to get out of the way. And you move. But in a matter of a few feet, he is back in his lane and I'm back in my lane. Now, what am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is, is that there's sometimes in our lives that repentance calls us to turn and not just to swerve. And sometimes in our Christian life, we will see the things of God as being, I need to change. And so we will swerve for a season. We will swerve for the moment. We will swerve until the guilt is released from us or until the guilt is lightened or until we find something else to distract us from our conviction. And so we'll swerve. And then as soon as we feel like the heat is off of us, we'll go back to what we were doing. That's not repentance. That's not called obedience. The king here in Nineveh, he looks at the people in verse 8 and he says, we need to repent. They needed to turn, to turn away from the violence and the evilness of their hands. He didn't call them to swerve. He called them to turn away. And brothers and sisters, friends, there's some things that you might have in your life today that God is saying that you need to turn away from. You might need to turn it off. You might need to throw it away. You might need to stop going there. You might need to cancel that account. You might need to go and apologize. You need, might need to set up safe, safety guards so you don't continue to dabble or dwabble in the things that you shouldn't be doing. Maybe you and I need to this morning say we are going to turn because as long as I am swerving or as long as I am engaging or as long as I am thinking it's private and nobody sees it and I'm over there dabbling and dwaddling I'm not living a life that says I believe what I say I believe. So here in this text, they not only respond to God, but they repented. They repented for, before God, but here's what's really struck me this week. They released. They responded. They repented. They released. What do you mean they released? Well, I want to see it with me here in verse 9. Verse 9 opens up with a question. 
Now, the king is writing. He's writing to all the people, all of the citizens, all of the ones that live there in Nineveh. So this is the king writing, the king writing to the people. And he says, I want you to turn. I want everybody to fast. Not just fast and you're going to go on a liquid-only diet. No, you're going to fast from water. You're going to fast from food. You're going to change your appearance, your livestock, your people, your friends, your family. Everybody, everybody's going to respond and everybody's going to repent. And then he says in verse 9, who knows? And there's a question mark there in my translation. Because it's the idea that he doesn't know, the people don't know, Jonah doesn't know. The only person that knows is God. But he says... Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now think about the information that you and I have received to this point there in the story of Jonah. Jonah comes into the town and he says, yet 40 day, days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Everybody starts to respond. Everybody starts to repent. And can you imagine there being that one, that one sweet saint there in the city? Well, it doesn't matter what we do. God said he's going to destroy us. So why does it matter? God already told us we're doomed, so why are you all making such a big deal out of it? I don't think he's telling us the truth. In fact, I think I'm just going to test him. You're always going to have those select people that are going to have the attitude that, you know what, they know better. But you know what we see, the example that we have is they released. King looks at the people. The people look at Jonah. Jonah looks at the people and says, we don't know what God is going to do. We are going to release God from any kind of assumptions. We're going to release God from any kinds of commands or mandates or directives. We're just going to say, God, you're God, and we will let you be God. Some of you aren't really tracking with what I'm trying to get at, so let me try this from a different angle. Sometimes we come to our points in lives and we think, well, God, I've been a good boy. I've been a good girl this week, and so therefore, God, you have to bless me. That's not how this works. How this works is you and I, either we're a good boy and a good girl because God is God, not because the God blesses us. So we live in obedience and we live in faithfulness to God, not because of what we expect to get in return, but because we want to say, God, we want to be faithful to you. And then we release, from, we release ourselves from God from any of the expectations around us. You see there in your notes, expectations reveal control. So many times we think that we're in charge so that we should get our way. First church I went to go serve at is the pastor. Some things you don't realize till you're already committed. First church, there was the largest family in the church numerically. And then not only were they largest church numerically, but then this same family had a business and this business employed over half of the people that attended church. So the result was that you had the patriarch of the family that had the most, had the most people on his side numerically. And then by the fact that he was the employer of the majority of the homes represented in the church, also had the majority amount of the influence of the people within the church. And in walks Spence. And as I come in, knowing even less than I know now. But I come in and he had, he had expectations that because of who he was and because of what he was, he had expectations that I would do X, Y, or Z. But because he had expectations, he thought he was in control. 
And because he thought he was in control, he had expectations. And sometimes when we come to God, we come to God with expectations saying, God, you're supposed to do this for me. God, I deserve to be happy. God, I deserve to not get sick. God, I deserve to have a happy life. God, I deserve to have comfort. God, I deserve to have freedom. God, I deserve to have my way. God, I deserve to have my prayers answered. God, I deserve for you to move in this direction or that direction. God, I deserve to get what I want, when I want, how I want it. God, I deserve this. And what it is, is you and I coming to God saying, God, we are going to come putting expectations upon you that you will do what we want you to do. Why? Not because we recognize that you're in control, but because we think we are in control. You may say, oh, Spence, there's no way that that would be even remotely true about any of us in this room. I want to warn you that is the very oldest sin in the book. What did Satan do? Satan thought he was in control and he found out he wasn't. Eve and Adam thought they were in control and they found out they weren't. Although those there at the Tower of Babel, they thought they were in control, and they weren't. Pilate thought he was in control, and he wasn't. The chief priests, the scribes, the religious leaders that crucified Jesus thought they were in control, and they weren't. So here in this example, you see this king, and he is coming, and he's saying, you know what? We have no idea what God is going to do, and we're not coming to God saying, God, we're going to fast. We're going to put ourselves in sackcloth. We are going to repent and respond. And so now, God, because we did this, you have to do that. No, 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 no. They released, they released those expectations from God. Sometimes we come into it, and sometimes our attitude is, because of what I've done in the past, It should dictate what God will do in the future. But we don't see that here in the text where their past dictated God's future. In fact, you see them coming and saying, we don't know what God is going to do, but you know what? We know what God has said, and that is enough for us to respond and repent to this morning. And I wonder how many... How many might be hearing, to, hearing my voice maybe in this room, maybe via the computer or via some other electronic means later on and they are sitting here and they find themselves in a position of life that they are mad at God or they are angry at God or they're dealing with doubt in God or all these struggles that you have, crisis of your faith because you have come to the table with expectations what God is going to do for you. And instead of just coming to the table and saying, God, I'm here to submit myself you. So they responded. They repented. And they released. They just said, God, here we are. We want to submit ourselves to you. We want to present ourselves to you. And God, whatever that looks like from here forth, we will trust in you. Come to the supper supper table time. Growing up, when the boys were younger, they would get to the time and they'd get done with their food and I would say, they'd say, may I get down please? And so I always had three questions. My question was, have you told mama thank you for the food? Second question was, have you finished your plate? Third question was, is do you want any more to eat? And so they would sit there and they'd look at me and they would have these questions memorized and these answers memorized. And so they would say, yes, sir, I've told mama thank you for the food. Yes, sir, I've had my food. And no, sir, I don't want anything more to eat. And then they would get down and they'd come to me and say, well, can we have some dessert? And I would say, no. You told me you didn't want anything more to eat, so you got down and so you're done. And so they got wise. They got smart. So then they would come to me and they would say, well, can we get down? And I'd ask the same three questions. And they would come to the question and they'd say, yes, I've had enough to eat, but I still have a dessert spot. 
So they would say, oh, we, we've had enough of this regular standard meal, but we still have a, a spot called the dessert spot that we'd still like to have dessert. So yes, we've had enough to eat of whatever the main course was, but we still have a dessert spot. And so they learned over time, okay, tell dad, hey, I've still got a dessert spot. So then dad would give us some dessert. But every once in a while, the conversation or the moment would come and the testing would come and I would look at them and I would say, yes, you told mama, thank you for the food. Yes, you've cleaned your plate. And yes, you have a dessert spot, but the answer is no. And you would see the conflict come over their face of, well, I thought that I was cleaning my plate so I got dessert. No, you were cleaning your plate because that's what's expected in this home. You weren't cleaning your plate because of what you get in return. You clean your plate out of obedience. And yet they were coming with this expectation that because they did this, I would then give them that. And that is an example for too many of us. I know for me personally, too many of us, too often, we come to God saying, God, I have done this, so now you have to do that. And we are coming with these expectations upon God. Well, that is not the way that we show our belief in God. Because if we really believed in God, then it wouldn't matter what my expectation or assumptions or commands or preference is. I am going to trust that God is God and he knows what is better for me. He is going to do what is better for me and he knows more than I know and he can be God. He doesn't need my so they give an example. They give an example of how they respond. They give an example of how they repented. They gave an example of how they released. But then notice what God does. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And let me tell you from the very onset, this isn't a foolproof recipe. It's not one of those things that you respond to the word of God, you repent to God, you release God, and then God every time, like some magical genie, is going to give you everything that you want. Here in the story, what did God do? It said that God saw them, God turned, God saw how they turned from their evil way, and then God reacted. God reacted to their contrition. God acted, reacted to their actions before him. So I don't want you to hear me say, well, you know what, if you just respond and you repent, that God will give you anything and everything that you want. It doesn't always happen that way. But I would encourage you to think that God still reacts to your pleas. He reacts to your desires. He reacts to your needs. And He reacts to the prayers of your heart. Notice what it says in verse 10. It says, when God saw what they did. I want to remind you this morning as we look here at this text that God saw them. God saw what they were going through. God saw how they were responding. God saw how they were repenting. God saw the condition of their heart. He saw the attitude of their heart, their hearts. He saw the posture of their hearts. God saw them and God still sees you and I today. God saw them and he saw what they were doing there in verse 10. And then it said that God relented of the disaster. In other words, I put there in your notes, God did not do it. Now, a lot of people will come to this text and they'll say, I don't like this verse. Did God change his mind? What if he did? Well, that wouldn't make him God anymore. Says who? Well, God's not allowed to change his mind. Says who? 
Well, I don't like the fact that God changes his mind. And you are the authority because? So there's all kinds of questions that we come into it trying to say, well, I have issues with this text. I'm going to tell you that my personal assumption, what I'm going to tell you personally, is I don't think God changed his mind. What I think happened is, is God let his plan continue to unfold in the lives of the people. The, the king said it right there at the very beginning of verse 9. Who knows? No one knows what God was going to do. No one knows what God's plan was to do. No one knows. Yes, God says, Jonah, go tell them that this is what I'm doing in 40 days. But he didn't say, all right, Jonah, that when you go do that, then they're going to do this, and they're going to do this, and they're going to do this, and they're going to do this. It's like watching a game of chess. As the game unfolds and as the pieces move, revelation changes. I think of it like this. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. But mercy is, is not getting something you do deserve. So here in this text, when you get to verse 10 and you see God react, it's not the fact that God is toying with them. He's not mistreating them. He is not misleading them. He is not deceiving them. He is not saying, well, I'm this and then I'm something else. He doesn't contradict himself. He doesn't double back on himself. He doesn't lie. He doesn't fail to show his, his goodness and his faithfulness. What God does here in verse 10, and I think that we should be so grateful for this this morning, is that God showed his mercy towards them. His mercy. That's what he's talking about in the book of Romans when, when, when Paul is talking about the difference between Jacob and Esau. And he's saying that God had mercy on one but didn't show the same amount of mercy on the other one. It's as if it's saying that it's God's prerogative of who he's going to show mercy to and who he's not going to show mercy to. I am sitting there and I am fishing on a boat and I catch a fish and I decide whether I throw that fish back or I don't. I'm the one that makes the decision who gets mercy and who doesn't get mercy. Who gets to go live another day and who gets eaten. And sometimes we start to walk around and think that God does, that, that we determine what God does and we have standards for God. It's God that doles out the mercy upon us. Mercy is not getting something you do deserve. Every single one of us in this room deserves judgment. Every single one of us in this room deserves eternal damnation in hell. Every single one of us deserve it because every single one of us have sinned against God. And yet in the mercy and the beauty and the goodness of God, he shows mercy to people. So what does God do? Not that God changes his mind. Yes, I realize the text said that God relented. You may say, well, that's just a, a synonymous word for changing his mind. What I think God is doing is God is saying, you know what? Even though you're a sinner, dead in your sins and trespasses, God so loved them that he relented. He gave them mercy when they didn't receive. They did not deserve mercy. You may come to this and say, well, in the that means God has to always show mercy. No, because you're not God, and I'm not God, and we don't determine it. But you know what we can do? We can come to God and say, maybe God would be willing to show me mercy. So I'm going to come, I'm going to present myself, I'm going to submit myself, and I'm going to make sure that whatever God gives me, I know God is just. Made me think of these lyrics to a song by Matt Papa. The lyrics go like this. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom and shore, our sins, they are many, his mercy 
is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam. What father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a death, a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. I can just imagine the people there in Nineveh. They didn't know what God was going to do. They didn't know how God was going to respond. But they said, we believe in God. And because we believe in God, we will respond. We will repent and we will release those expectations. And then we're just going to let God be God. And when God saw the condition of their hearts, when saw, God saw the posture of their attitudes, God reacted to them and he showed them mercy. So here is my question for us today as a church. Are we going to show the people in this community? Are we going to show these people in our homes? Are we going to show the people in our workplaces? Are we going to show them that we believe in God? Not by coming and saying, God has to do this for me, or God will do this for me. By us coming to God and saying, God, we will respond to your word. God, we will repent when your word calls us to repent. And God, we're not going to come with expectations. And anytime you see, we see your goodness in our lives, we will rejoice because we will recognize it is all your mercy. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I wasn't entitled to it. It's God's mercy. Are those examples true in your life today? Let me give you three pieces, three reminders to walk out of the door with and we'll be done. The first piece of good news I want you to see from this text is that God's word is still true. Jonah comes into the city and he says, yeah, 40 days and then it will be overthrown. He tells them, this is God's message to you. And I'm here to tell you this morning that from Genesis all the way through Revelation, all the way from the beginning to the end, it is still God's word and, it's there, and God's word is still true. God's word is still true. So you say, well, could they trust that Jonah was saying the word of God? Yes, because they saw what God did. And the same way you and I can come to the word of God and we can have confidence in God's word that it is still true. You can get on all kinds of websites, all the disinformation, all of the fake news, all of the circular things, all of the back and forth and back and forth, wondering what is up, what is down, not knowing what you can believe and what you can't believe. And yet when you come to God's word, God's word is still true. It's more reliable than a fake book. It's more objective than Wall Street Journal. It's more timely than Yahoo News. It's more informed than the Daily Oklahoman. It's still true. Not just that God's word is still true, but I want to remind you this morning that God is still watching. That God is still watching. God is watching you. God is watching me. God is watching us as a church. God is watching how we respond. God is watching how we react. God is watching how we live our lives. God is watching us. God is watching us all the time. You may say, well, you know what I'm going to leave here? And I'm going to go home and I'm going to do my own thing over there. And you don't know nobody knows about it. So it doesn't hurt anybody. So it really doesn't matter. So I can engage my little private sin, my little pet sin. And nobody's even the wiser. I want you to know that God is watching you. 
So I engage in these little, these little pet sins, these little private sins. I engage in this vice. I, begin, I engage in this behavior. I do all these things over here to the side, especially these young people. They think they can get on social media and nobody knows. They can delete the history. They can have all of these tricks and trades to get past all of these parental filters that these parents think, oh, I've got a filter on there, so I'm safe and secure. No, you're not. And they get on there and they do all these things thinking nobody sees and God is still watching. So when you get before God and like, oh God, I'm, I'm, I'm being so good. Go God, I'm doing everything right. God says, no, I saw what you were doing last night because I'm watching you. There's this last piece. You can return to God today. Where do I get that from? Well, you look there at the chapter, the, the, the passage before us, it says when the people heard the warning of Jonah, when they heard the word of the Lord, what they do, they repented and they returned back to God. You may say, well, Spence, how can you say that I still have that available to me today? Well, the fact that you are here and you're hearing God's word and you have an opportunity to respond to God's word and repent according to God's word, you have an opportunity today, this morning, you can return to God today. So what are you waiting for? For. Or you can walk outside of these walls and you can be excited about more things than sports. You can wake up in the morning, you can be excited about more things than possessions. You can go to bed Tuesday night being more excited about things than money. You can wake up on a Thursday morning and you can be excited about more things than just family and temporal things that are all passing away. You and I can wake up excited about who we are in Jesus Christ. You and I can get up and we can be excited about the fact that we have a loving God that loved us so much he sent his son to die for us. We can get up day after day, go to bed night after night excited, not because everything is smooth and everything is happy and we're getting our way in every stage of life, but because our names are written in the book of life. What was that song that Greg Haggis sing? What was, it? what was the chorus? What was the chorus? A new name written down in glory. And, and, some, of, and some of us are kind of like, mm. new name written down in glory. It's like you think you're getting one of those emails, you know, that says that some person, some fancy title, they, they have $960 million they're wanting to give you. Just give them all your personal information and they'll send the money right over. Some of you act like it's like that. It's not that kind of a deal. Some of you can return to God today. So the question is, are you? Or are you going to walk out of these walls denying your response, denying repentance, determined to do what you want to do, how you want to do it? Are you going to walk out of these walls thinking next time, maybe later? Or are you going to follow the example that we have before us this morning? of what it looks like to believe in God. Would you bow your heads with me?